the reading of the message. Our scripture today is Ezra 3, 10 through 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the direction of King David of Israel, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people, who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of the blessings of retirement for me is that I, such as it is, I have been able to immerse myself in poetry in a way that I never was drawn to before. So before each sermon, I will be reading some sort of a poem to you from one of the myriad of poetry books that I moved with me, and perhaps a few that I will find online. This is from John O'Donohue's book, To Bless the Space Between Us, and the poem is entitled, For the Interim Time. When near the end of day, life has drained out of light and is too soon for the mind of night to have darkened things, no place looks like itself. Loss of outline makes everything look strangely in between, unsure of what has been or what might come. In this wan light, even trees seem groundless. In a while, it would be night, but nothing here seems to believe the reef the relief of dark. You are in this time of the interim where everything seems withheld. The path you took to get here has washed out. The way forward is concealed from you. The old is not old enough to have died away and the new is too young to be born. You cannot lay claim to anything. This is a place of dusk. Your eyes are blurred and there is no mirror. Everyone else has lost sight of your heart, and you can see nowhere to put your trust. You know you have to make your own way through. As far as you can, hold your confidence. Do not allow your confusion to squander this call, which is loosening your roots in false ground, that you might come free from all you have outgrown. What is being transfigured here is your mind, and it is difficult and slow to become new. The more faithfully you can endure here, the more refined your heart will become for your arrival in the new dawn. 
So what is this interim stuff anyhow? In other denominations, interims have been used for a long, long time. In my very first appointment, a woman came to my door and knocked on my door and she said, I'm Arlene Spencer and I'm Presbyterian interim and I live up the street. And I looked at Arlene Spencer, the interim Presbyterian who lived up the street, and I said, what's an interim? I'd never heard the term through seminary. I'd never even experienced what an interim was. And she said, well, I serve in a variety of capacities. And she explained interim to me. Little did I know that I was going to end up being one of those things. Our denomination has not used interims, even though it, has been, it was approved in the General Conference of 1992. But we haven't really used interims. When I was nearing retirement, I had a very close friend, clergy person, retired, who told me that I didn't want to retire from, but to retire to. And I had done training in spiritual direction, which I love. I had done training in being a pastoral coach, which I didn't love so much. And I didn't have something to go to. And I was a little nervous about that. And then I read this article in one of our conference blurbs about interim training being at, offered at the camp that is near and dear to my heart and was only 20 minutes away from where I lived. And I thought, perfect. So I went, and boy, was I bit by this interim bug. I thought it was awesome. Before I finished that training, I had signed up to become a trainer. So you are my third interim. And in the interim time, I have learned a lot. A lot more than I learned in being trained and a lot more than I've learned training others. It's in doing the actual work that I've learned a lot. Number one. I am not here to fix you. From what I've seen so far, you are not broken. You do not need fixing. You need to come together. You need to take ownership of what belongs to the laity. Two of the things that the district superintendent and the bishop talked to me about were that there needs to be healing in this place, healing from the pain of COVID, healing from the pain of separation, healing from pain among individuals in this congregation. I was also told that the laity needs to be empowered to do what God has called them to do. I've also learned in my work that there should never be more than three things. And there was something mentioned in an email about having family promise here and having First Church here aligned with the core values of the church. And I thought that was really cool, but nobody has been able to tell me what the core values are or where I might find them or if you even have them. 
So we will be working on actually defining and articulating what your core values are. And once you have core values articulated, you will be able to say, everything that happens here has to funnel through those core values, whether it's a youth group, whether it's a rummage sale, or whether it is a worship style. Needs to funnel through your core values. You don't do things that you don't believe in, right? One of the things that I've learned a lot in coming into interim work is that very often what has been defined as the need for an interim isn't actually what needs to happen. My first interim, the pastor had died unexpectedly, and I went into that church thinking I was going to do grief work, something I have a great deal of experience in. When I got there, I realized that this was an extremely conflicted congregation. It had been a merger that had happened perhaps 25 years ago, and in their contemporary worship, which contemporary worship for me is really silly because it's all stuff that you did 50 years ago, which isn't contemporary, just saying. So um, they, they sort of mingled for that, and that was a church that they did have for that worship a new group of people. But they had a traditional service, and the people that came from the Whitesboro Church sat on this side, and the people that came from the Central Church sat on this side, and in greeting time, they did not speak to each other after 25 years. The people from the Whitesboro Church were never asked to serve on committees because the people from the Central Church controlled all of that. Hmm, was there a problem there? And then I found out that they had, and this is 25 years later, right? So they had built a new building, probably a little bit later than this one because this is, this is a, a style that was used in a lot of churches at the time your building was built but it was a little bit more new than this one. And they had mortgaged a million and a half or a million three or so to do that. Now, if you do the math, if you're any kind of an accountant or you've done any, or if you've had your own mortgage and paid it off, um, when you hit the 25-year mark, you're pretty close to having it done. And at the 25-year mark, they, set, they really celebrated that they'd finally gotten under a million dollars. So I said, hmm, was there a period of time where you only paid the interest on this loan? Oh, no, 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 we've always paid in full. Was there a time when you refinanced this loan? Oh, no, 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 this is the original loan. Come to find out, they had refinanced it twice they had spent about 10 years paying only the interest, and they had, for reasons that I cannot figure out, somehow been able to finagle the conference into guaranteeing that mortgage. Oops. Once that's on paper, it's difficult to undo. 
So when we come to this time of trying to figure out what's going on and how you need to grow, I see Wesley being in a place where you have more need to recover from COVID than any other thing. The time of separation has decimated most churches. There are things where this passage out of Ezra really comes to mean something here because the passage out of Ezra talks about letting go of the old and embracing the new. They were rebuilding the temple after the, the word just left my head, after being in exile. They were rebuilding the temple and there were people who actually stood up and said, but we want it the old way. We want it back to where it was. We want it to be the same as it always was before. And other people saying, oh, this is a wonderful thing to have something new to celebrate. So the singing and the weeping, the celebrating, the rejoicing, the crying, was so mixed that you couldn't discern one from the other. Now, Ezra never shows up in the lectionary, so you probably have never heard this passage preached, but it never, ever comes up. And yet, every time there is a pastoral transition, there are people saying, thank goodness, and other people saying, oh, look what's here now. This could be exciting. I've said for years that in our United Methodist tradition, love them or hate them, your pastor's not forever. And it's very true. We move a lot. We move a lot less than we used to move. I started in this ministry thing as a layperson, remembering when you would go to annual conference and they would announce the appointments, and that was the first you'd heard about it. And that was before cell phones, and there would be a line at those pay phones with pastors calling their spouse and saying, start packing. Now, I don't know if that's true in all conferences, but as recently as three years ago, the Alabama conference announces all of their appointments on one day, and it's usually Mother's Day. I got news for you, folks. By Mother's Day, I was packed. I was ready to go. Mother's Day is in May. That's crazy. But amidst the celebration and the weeping over the temple, the people who had been in exile were able to come together, to work together for good. So whether you are weeping or celebrating, you can come together to work for good, to do what God is calling you to do in this place, in this time, to find out what it is that is your unique place in this life of Christ. Each one of us comes with an agenda, if you will. You have ideas about what should happen in church, some people think that it should be one thing. Some people think it should be another. When we come together now, there are people who are, who are bemoaning the fact that we do not 
come together the same way. We still have people who are watching this online, and oh my goodness, we don't see them anymore, and how are we going to be in relationship with people we don't even see, and how do we do this now? And where are the kids? Just where are those kids? This place used to be full of kids. Where are they? I have four grandchildren, and I can tell you none of them have darkened the door of a church recently. I have one who goes to camp with me. What's the difference? I don't know about your kids or your grandkids or the kids that live next door. My kids play soccer, all four of them. They're in travel teams and they're in club teams, and there is nothing in the world that we're going to do to say, you need to be in church on Sunday morning. And what do churches do? We wring our hands and say, well, where are they? And why, why don't they come? And what's wrong with their parents? Well, most of their parents are like my kids. My son went to seminary with me, and he saw what the church did to people, and he wasn't interested in being part of that organization. He saw people spend $40,000 on a seminary education and be told, nope, we don't want you. My daughter went to a Catholic college and says she's had enough of religion to last her for the rest of her life because she was required to go to chapel as part of a Catholic college. She did have to take a course in Protestant tradition and write a paper, and she wrote about me, which I still have. But the idea that we're going to go back to the way it was, and if that is your vision for this church to go back to 1956 and fill these pews and have 94 kids in Sunday school, it ain't happening, folks. It is not going to happen. Those days are gone. You want to fill this church? I can tell you how you can do it. Each and every one of you sitting here, every single solitary one of you, knows somebody who doesn't attend church at all. Invite them. Not just say, hey, I wish you'd come to church with me. I will pick you up and I will take you out for coffee afterwards. And if every single person comes, and if you invite them, the church will grow. I've never once been in a church that says, we're the nastiest church ever, nobody ever wants to come here. You talk to people, we're the friendliest church. We, you know, we greet everyone who walks in the door. We are so friendly. It takes a huge amount of courage to walk through that door for the first time, especially if you're coming in alone. And God help you if you're coming with children who don't sit and behave. We're very quick to judge the people we don't know. So if you really want to grow the church, you need to become invitational people. And this is not the first time or the last time you will hear this. Because invitation is what counts. I know you're friendly. I felt that warmth and friendliness from you. But I bet if I came in here dragging a garbage bag full of my belongings, there would be a whole different welcome. Think about how you welcome the people here. 
We'll be working together over the next few weeks. I will be explaining to you the process that you will be working through. I'm in charge of the process. You're in charge of the work. I'm in charge of guiding you. I'm not in charge of the results. The work we do together will never be finished in a year. It might not be finished in two years. If you're lucky, it'll be finished in five years. You will look at your history, which doesn't mean you're going to look and dwell on your history. There's a reason why rearview mirrors are this big. Windshields are this big. You cannot spend your time looking back to see what happened. You need to glance over your shoulder, see what's going on. But if you drive looking into your rearview mirror, you're going into a ditch, for sure. We'll spend some time talking about your identity. We'll spend some time talking about your denominational connection, which is kind of murky right now. We'll spend some time talking about lay leadership and how you cultivate lay leadership and how you train lay leaders. And then we will talk about the future. So that's the next few weeks, and then the hard work starts. So I invite you to put on your sneakers, get yourself ready to run. This is not something we take slowly and a little bit at a time. This is going to be faithfulness on steroids. So get yourself ready for a journey. And in my opinion, the best way to get ourselves ready for this journey is to celebrate the sacrament of communion together.